here. Some of you are here for the first time. We do this thing where we pause before the sermon, and we just kind of ask an opening question that leads us into um, our discussion today. And so I would love for you to just find a person you don't know or someone around you, break off into groups of twos and threes, and go through these two questions. And again, because we have so many new people, make sure you include everyone else around you. Um, Lastly, we have about 10 people standing in the back. So if there's any chairs between you, go ahead and try to scoot in. We also have these front rows open. Uh, We'd love for you to come and sit there as well. Okay, I'll be up in three minutes, and then we'll work into the sermon. I remember when I tore my ACL for the second time, second or third time, I was playing basketball at at a gym in a Christian league. Go, went up for a layup. I didn't do good rehab the first time and uh, landed wrong. And my, I just felt the snap of my ACL, my second, my other knee. And I was in excruciating pain, a lot of cursing. My youth pastor was like, shh, you know, like, don't say those words. I was like, I'm hurting a lot. And only those words will communicate how I feel. Um, I think when it comes to being disappointed by God, and I was talking to Joe over there, and um, I think sometimes I'm not even aware of my expectations or, or what I thought he would do for me until something like that happens. And I'm just like, what the heck, God? You know, like, I thought, I thought being Christian means that you don't get ACL tears. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you're just wondering why something bad, why you would have to go through pain, why this thing isn't working out the way it's supposed to while you're following Jesus, while you're walking with him, while you're going to church. Um, when we go, get to Matthew 16, we see the disciples have a lot of expectations about Jesus. In the verses prior, Matthew gives this profession. When Jesus says, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And as Matthew is saying that, he's not only saying it on his behalf, representing himself. Oftentimes, Um, Peter, I'm sorry, in his dialogue with Jesus is representing the rest of the disciples. So as a disciple uh, group, he is saying, they are saying that they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus affirms this. He said, man didn't say this to you. You didn't think this up. This was revealed to you by God. And they were going nuts. It was like the best thing they've ever heard in their life. And, and then we're caught off guard. I, I, a lot of you are in our Bible studies. We walk through these passages together. He ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why, why would Jesus do that? You know, the disciples have no idea why Jesus would proclaim to be the Messiah, would affirm his Messiahship, and then tell his disciples to keep it on the down low. Because his disciples had so many expectations for what it meant to be Messiah. And one of it was going public. It's like hearing Bernie Sanders say, I'm going to run for president, but don't tell anyone for the rest of the campaign. And you're like, how are you going to win? And that's exactly what the disciples were thinking. The Messiah for the Jew, for the modern day Jew, is a liberator, is a freedom fighter, is someone who's going to chase out the occupying force. And they've seen this time and time again in the history of Israel. And they're waiting for it to happen one more time. But this one's really hard. It's the the Romans. They are taking over the known world. They were an elite fighting force. And what's unique about the Romans in the way that they conquered people 
was that being Roman wasn't primarily ethnic. Think about that. Uh, when when um, the Japanese conquered a lot of Asia, you'll never become Japanese, right? You're subjugated to Japanese as a Korean or as a Chinese person. If you're in Nazi Germany and they took over your country, you're never going to be as good as a Nazi German. They're the pinnacle of the human race. You're always subjugated under them. And that's how a lot of occupations happen. When you occupy a space, your race is greater, your country is greater, and they're always subjugated to you. The Romans had a really amazing, profound idea of conquering. They would take over a people group and then convert them to becoming fully Roman because it wasn't primarily an ethnicity. It was a system of belief. It was being a citizen. It was partaking in their culture, their value system, their legal system. And so you could become, you could be Jewish, taken over, and then as they've dominated you, they say you can now become Roman with us. And so Roman, being Roman was expansive in the modern world. Now, as a Jew, you, you're, some of them are folding to that, um, are benefiting to folding into becoming Roman. And then there's zealots, people who are rebelling against the Roman Empire. And these zealots and a lot of the modern-day Jews are looking for a Messiah. They don't want to be occupied. They still want their independence. They want sovereignty. And so we have someone like Titus Josephus, who, was a first, uh, who started the first Roman-Jewish war. This is only 30 years after Jesus was crucified, and he claimed to be the Messiah. Same word that Jesus used. And he and the Jewish people understood it to be militar- militaristic. And so him and other uh, Jews that took military command actually expelled the Romans from Jerusalem and throughout Galilee. And then finally he met the Romans, you know, rallied larger, much larger armies and then ran them over. But when you think about the disciples hearing that Jesus was the Messiah, they're thinking this. And then they're putting all of Jesus' miracles in that context as a military commander, as a Messiah, as a liberator. And it's really exciting to think about it. I mean, you don't need a supply chain because Jesus is going to multiply bread and fish. You could go out to fight, get your arm chopped off, and be like, hey, Jesus, you know, like, you're good again. Or even if you die, right? If I knew I was invincible, man, I would, I would go out to every war without a shield, without armor, just like maybe just underwear and swords, you know, and just like just going at it. And then, I, and then I get stabbed a few times, and then Jesus is like raised from the dead. And then he had elements. He, had, he could control control the oceans, right? They got super rejected by a city, and his disciples are walking out upset, and they turn to Jesus. They're like, do you do fire stuff? Like, <laughs> you, you do healing, you raise the dead, you calm storms. Can you rain fire? Because Elijah rained fire a few times, and we're wondering if you could do that to the city that offended us. Because they had this idea that Jesus would be a king, but he would be a king that combined the powers of Samson and Elijah and Moses, these, these heroes of Judaism they had action figures for and were PJs of, right? They, they thought the Messiah would be like the captain planet of all of those different, you know, biblical heroes. And then Jesus 
says and thinks something totally different. He deeply disappoints the expectations of his disciples. He says, um, verse 21, after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. Jesus took him aside, uh, Peter took him aside and, re, and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, again, this is shocking to his disciples. When they were thinking, what's next, right? From that time on, after Jesus is known to be the Messiah, they're asking, what's next? Do we go after the biggest purses in the Jewish community and fund our military campaign? Do we just go from 5,000 to 10,000 to 50,000 and raise up a vast army, the greatest the world has ever seen? And then they're also thinking about themselves. What's next for me? Because I got to hang out with Steve Jobs as he's building his first computer, and I bought Apple stocks at 50 cents a pop, right? What's in it for me? I'm like Trump's number one supporter, and I was with him when no one believed he could ever win, which was like almost the whole time. And, um, and I was there next to him. Now, what, what seat do I get? And his disciples are thinking about themselves in the same way. I'm one of Jesus' first 12 disciples. He's going to take Jerusalem, sit on the throne, and that's Peter's concern. That's what he's thinking about. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says that you have man's concerns, human's concerns. All of his disciples did. James and John are fighting for, to sit on Jesus' right and left-hand side as they envision him ruling Jerusalem and the known world. And Jesus is saying, my path is totally different than what you're thinking. When you say Messiah, you're thinking glory. You're thinking crown. Everyone else is too. That's why he, he tells them, don't say that I'm the Messiah because everyone's thinking crown and kingdom. I'm thinking cross first and then crown. They're thinking glory and I'm thinking humiliation and then being exalted by the Father. That's the road of our Christ. Sacrificing and suffering in this life in order to have glory in the next. And when he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, I don't think he's calling Peter Satan. By the way, you never rebuke your rabbi in Jewish culture. That just never ever happens, but they're freaking out, right? Because they have totally different visions of the future. So Peter rebukes them, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And I don't think he's calling Peter Satan, but I think he's identifying satanic influence in Peter, that Satan is influencing Peter to have Jesus negate the road of suffering and to go directly um, to take his place in, in Israel and in the world. And that was Satan's temptation to him in, in chapter 4, right? right? In the wilderness, he's like, dude, forget the nails, forget the, the lashes, forget the cross, just bend the knee, and I'll hand these kingdoms to you, 
Isn't that easier? Or jump off of um, the Jerusalem's temple, and all the high priests are gathered, all the priests are gathered there, all the Pharisees are there, the richest people are there. If you jump from there and angels catch you, they'll just give you the spot. Everyone will follow you. Why suffer? But Jesus had something different in mind. He knew that God's calling for him was to, was to die for our sins, was to go to Calvary, was to take his power, and instead of conquering people and land and converting them, he was to die for them. He was to suffer for us, to give, forgive us of our sins, and to build a kingdom of hearts. Yeah, Kingdom of Hearts 2 is is being released soon. But to build a kingdom of hearts of people who aren't conquered by Jesus and then forced to choose him, but who are loved and forgiven by Jesus, who sees a king that's humble and sacrificial and then chooses to love him. And isn't that how Jesus conquers the rest of the world? We see a king who loves us, and we willingly give him our allegiance. We see a king who sacrifices himself for us. And then we say we will sacrifice too. This is the way Jesus conquers. And when I think about the Roman Empire, we see its rebels and ruins and monuments, but there are no more Romans. And then I see Jesus' kingdom, and it spans throughout the world and and bleeds into every culture and race and creed. Because he doesn't conquer land with swords, he conquers hearts with love and forgiveness and sacrifice. But the most difficult part of his message is that he calls us to the same thing. And I think Peter knew that. I think what was most difficult for Peter was he knew that following Jesus to Jerusalem to take the the throne would mean that he would get a smaller crown, but a crown nonetheless. But then Jesus instead called Peter to follow him to the cross. Then Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So what an amazing call for a Christian, right? It's not one of prosperity and power and fame and wealth. It's a call to deny self and to take up the cross, the greatest symbol of execution at the time of giving up your life. That's what Jesus calls us to take on. And he says that we can't properly follow him if we aren't willing to deny ourselves, right? If we indulge ourselves, we can't follow Jesus. If we're not willing to sacrifice and suffer, we can't follow Jesus. That being ready to follow Jesus means self-denial and sacrifice. And I think only when we deny ourselves and sacrifice do we it is at that point that we're saying this other thing is greater than us. And I think the times where not, I'm not willing to deny myself or to sacrifice for Jesus, I'm saying that I'm greater than Jesus. 
I'm saying that the Christian faith in Jesus is really there for my comfort, right? For my security, for my pleasure. And it's at this road of sacrifice and self-denial that I'm lifting him up more to myself. Let me give you an easy example. All of you guys know that I love volleyball, right? And so I'm trying to drop like, I don't know, 15 to 20 pounds so I could just dominate people on the court more than I already am. No, I'm just kidding. There's a lot of people better than me. Um, <laughs> I lost like every game on Monday, and this guy was just wrecking me. Anyways, um, but if I lost 20 pounds, I think I could keep up with him. So I've, I've taken on intermittent fasting, which means I don't eat from 8 p.m. to about 12, uh, 12 p.m., 16 hours of fasting, and I eat for about eight hours. Now, in the mornings, I, I love brunch and breakfast, but giving up that hasn't been too hard. I just kind of take a coffee, but I'm denying like my hunger, right? And, uh, but I love coffee, so I drink coffee. It hits 12 o'clock. I have an amazing lunch. I have dinner, but the hardest part is like 10 p.m. Me and Nina are watching Netflix, and then she freaking goes to the cover, pulls out ramen, and boils amazing instant noodle. And it makes that egg in it where it's like perfectly boiled, soft yolk, you know? And then she brings it out and it's steaming. And then she pulls on it with her, with her utensils, with her, with her uh, chopsticks, and it just hangs around. And then the steam kind of takes a different shape. And then she's like, you want some? I'm like, you're the worst human. But when I say no to ramen, which isn't every time, what I'm doing is I'm saying yes to something greater. And I wonder in our Christian life, is Jesus greater? Or are we really what we worship? Because we can be Christians, but we're king, right? We could be cultural Christians, but we are greater. And we've, we, we look at the totality of our Christian life, and we've denied nothing, and we've sacrificed nothing. And all we've done is, say, is said, how can the Christian faith serve me? You know, I, I, again, I've noticed those moments in my life where I shake my fist at sacrifice and suffering at, at the Lord because I, I, for some reason I didn't factor that into following Jesus. And when I do that, I'm not embracing discipleship. You know, I think that there's so many ways that we deny ourselves. Today you denied yourself of sleeping in, right, so that you can come to service to hear the word of God. Um, our children's team, our, our host team, our worship team denied themselves of even more sleep to come in early and lay down chairs and practice worship songs. We have a team denying themselves uh, from hanging out on Monday and Tuesday nights to serve the people who are domestically abused or um, high, low-income youth. There's so many ways to follow Jesus, but it's a way of self-denial. We'd self-deny ourselves when we say no to sin, when we say no to our flesh, when, when we say no to pornography or sex before marriage or running after money with no um, boundaries eth ethnic ethically, right? We deny ourselves so that we can go after Jesus. And then he also says to take up the cross. And I think the cross is twofold. I think there's a suffering on the cross that's like the suffering of Job where the things in our life goes wrong and we suffer, but we give glory and worship to the Lord. And then there's a second suffering where we suffer for the sake of the gospel, 
where we're willing to make sacrifices so that the gospel can be proclaimed, so that the kingdom of God can go forward. So I think about the first idea of taking up the cross, the suffering. And my, I met up with my mentor, Mark Sosi. He's He sits on the chair of theology for Talbot. I'm very privileged to be mentored by him and other great men in my life, and I would be a shadow of who I am today without them. Um, Anyways, we had coffee together. He came to speak at our church about a year ago, and they were missionaries in Ukraine. They came back from the U.S. because his wife uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And about a year and a half ago, she passed away. And so I've had coffee with him twice since then. And we've just, um, I've just been able to hear him share about what it's like to lose um, his wife. And he talks about how, you know, people ask him, what's it like to be single again after all these years of marriage? And he says, I, I don't feel like I am because she's still with me and I hear her voice and she's shaped me in irreversible ways. And he talked about how his son uh, invited his friend to stay with them for three months over summer without asking him, right? Like, hey, my son's staying with us. Oh, how long? A few days? No, like three months. And um, so Mark, my, my mentor, talked to his son about how that's inappropriate and not, not honoring them. But then he thought I would just kick out his friend because I'm not obligated to this. But Bonnie, his wife, would let him in, would welcome him. And he welcomed him because Bonnie's a part of him. And then he said something else about this category of suffering, of taking up the cross. He said, even pain is to be stewarded for the Lord. Even our pain we should take and say, how do I use this for God's glory? And there's so many people he's been able to sit with who have lost um, sisters and sons and aunts, and uncles, and and just, I get it. Let's walk into this pain and out together. Some of you suffer from depression and anxiety. Some of you have been abused. And when we're able to hold God's hand and walk into suffering, knowing that he suffered first, we get to hold the hand of another and feel their pain, and grieve with them, and extend um, healing. This other way of suffering is for the gospel. And Paul puts it well. He's talking to Timothy, and he says, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I am an appointed Herod and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Um, I love this first part. I was, again, in vacation reading 2 Timothy. And, you know, last week I talked about how there's moments where God reveals truth to you. I don't think about it in a way of like opening up the Bible like, what, do I, what am I supposed to do today? I, I think about it as like being a serious student of God's word. Um, but there's moments where in the context of scripture, in the author's intent, God gives us 
with the truth that other people would glean as well, but he pierces our hearts, and it's as if he's speaking to us. And here, I felt that moment when I was sitting with God at a coffee shop, that what we're stewarding when we say gospel, what we have in our hands, what Jesus has done, and what we are proclaiming to others is the destruction of death and the gift of life and immortality. Think about that. That the gospel is the gift of immortality. And that is what Jesus is asking us to steward and to gift to others. What an amazing gift. And Paul gets this and spends his life doing it. And then he, he, in another passage, right, he lists his suffering, how he's carried the cross for the gospel. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten a number of times. He's been in prison. He's ran away from cities. He's been bit, bitten by snakes, and he's willing to go to the death. And I wonder if when we see the gospel and see our king, if we're saying, I'm willing to suffer just like you did for my salvation, for my forgiveness, You went to the cross and helped me carry my cross. What has God called us to do? And is there anything off limits? You know, when you have this idea of carrying the cross, it's saying my whole life is over and I'm giving it to Jesus. Uh, It's it's giving our whole life away, right? And that's what Jesus asks us to do in the the following passage. It's like... um, He's saying that those who save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Are we living our life as if we're not holding on to anything? In complete surrender, saying, God, this life is yours. And I think I'm pushed to that point often when I start seeing what I'm still, what I'm not willing to contemplate, right? Like when I invite you guys um, and when I thought about myself, hey, should I go to Iraq? Boom, I got work while I get vacation days. For me, I got, a, I got a two-year-old son. How will we cover daycare, blah, blah, blah. Well, like, I'm going to miss him a lot. There's just a laundry list of reasons for why I can't do something. But I think what Jesus is saying is like, carrying your cross is saying, God, my whole life is at your feet, and I'm going to consider this too. If you're calling me, I will find a way to go, Right? When I think about my home, we're three bedrooms. We only use one because Liam sleeps with us. And we have two more. And I'm, I'm like, God, is there, like, is there a foster kid? <laughs> is, is there adoption in our, that you're going to grow in our hearts? Um, and I, again, laundry list of why you shouldn't adopt, right? Of how you can't provide. Of how hard it's going to be. And then there's carrying our cross and saying, God, this life is yours. And there's going to be ways that he's calling you to sacrifice. That's different than me. But there's a cross for all of us to bear. Are are we willing to bear it? Or will we make excuses? Or is this Christian life really just about us being more comfortable? Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself and carry your cross. You have to count this life as a loss. And allow me to just take it over. That's what it means to be Christian. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Lastly, in verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, 
And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some of you are standing here and will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming to his kingdom. In verse 27, Jesus is talking about the end times. He's saying that in this life, he's going to be crucified. He's coming as the lamb that will be slain for the sins of the world. But there's coming a time where he comes with his angels And what the Jewish version of the Messiah is in that moment, that is how he comes a second time, but exponentially greater. He takes over the whole earth, and he rules it. And then he uses this life, this era of humanity, to evaluate those who will rule with him. That we sacrifice and we live this life abandonedly to rule with Christ in the next. Is that worth it? Do we really believe this? Because that's what he's inviting us to. And he's, he's giving this picture of him taking the throne and ruling the earth. And he's saying, are you living for this life now? Or are you living for the next? He describes the people who will rule with him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is that the life that we're walking into and that we're choosing and that we're we're wrapping our arms around, saying this is what I believe following Jesus looks like? You know, again, we're going to be challenged in very unique ways. There's unique ways that God has blessed us and gifted us and made us rich. For me, it's friendship. For others of you, it's finances. For others of you, it's education, knowledge, or family. And we're leveraging all of God's wealth. We embrace it and we take his blessings and we leverage it for his kingdom, right? And then there's the crosses that he's calling us to bear. The ways that he's calling us to sacrifice and how do we take that too and embrace it? And say, God, I'm going to use this for you as well. You know, for me, um, it was God asking me to go to Iraq. And to be honest, like, there's a little bit of fear. And, and I'm kind of scared of everything now. I'm scared of crossing the street because I have a baby boy. And uh, he doesn't look both ways. And I'm scared of uh, people mugging me because I have a baby boy, right? When I, was in my, when I was 20s or even right before I had a child, I'd be like, I'll fight anyone, you know? <laughs> like, I don't care. And, uh, and now I'm like, uh, he's ergoed. Like, my son is ergoed to me, and I, don't, and I don't think he can take a punch. And then, and so there's all these things kind of um, starting to, I guess, make me soft or make me hesitate. And some of them should cause hesitation, and as God's called me to go to Iraq, just for two weeks, it's really kind of brief and maybe not that big a deal. Um, 
I had to start surrendering those things, saying, is my comfort greater or is the gospel worth more? Is my life something I need to keep safe all the time or is the gospel worth more? Do I need to be with Liam every single day or is the gospel worth some distance from him? And that's what Jesus is asking of us, that we look at the gospel, this thing that Jesus revealed to us that destroys death and gives us life and immortality, and we spend our life on that. And we're saying it's worth it. There's going to be things in your life in this moment that Jesus is asking you to deny yourself in so that you could follow him. It could be a sin that you have a death grip on. It could be your job. It could be that promotion. It could be a few friends that um, is influencing you the wrong way. God has a cross that he's asking you to bear to advance his kingdom. You know, we have a group of Epic students from Arizona who's giving up their spring break to be here to go to Chaplin and share the gospel. And, and they're bearing a cross, right? Because they could be partying it up or hanging out with their friends or Netflix binging. They're denying themselves. How, and God's calling them to do that. And what has God called us to do? And are we willing to do it? I pray that when we think about following Jesus, it's not into more comfort and more riches and more safety, but it's into darkness to bring light. It's into death to bring life. It's into sacrifice to see, to see people find him. It's into death to find a resurrection. Even the very concept of forgiveness is taking pain and death for the resurrection of a relationship, for the resurrection of our souls instead of being bitter and vengeful, being free and extending forgiveness. God calls us again and again into sacrifice and, and death for resurrection and reward. He calls us to the cross before the crown. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would search our hearts, Holy Spirit, and see the ways that we aren't willing to deny ourselves and see the crosses that we've left behind and we don't want to pick up. And we all have them. None of us lives fully abandoned to you. I pray that in this moment, you would just show those things. You would call us in this moment to deny ourselves and carry our cross and follow you. I just want to make space, 30 seconds to a minute, not for you to talk to God, but for you just to listen. Are you willing to listen with an open heart and an open life and allow him to show you the cross that he wants you to carry. Allow you to find the places that he wants you to deny so that he gets glory, so that the gospel pushes forward, so that you become more refined and you cling to him closer and you live with more freedom. Could we just take 30 seconds to a minute to hear God speak those things into our life, the places that he wants us to deny ourselves in, the places that he wants us to carry the cross so that we can truly follow him.